Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode and a very exciting episode of Strangers in the Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here back this week with uh, regular co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you? I'm quite tired, but no, I'm good. I shouldn't say that at the start of a mammoth show like this. We've got um, loads and loads to fit in and we always say that that's the case, but even more so than ever, I guess, today, because it is about that time of year when we look back on what was just a wonderful year across the board, really, wasn't it, Paul? 2020, one for the ages. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd, I'd like to say, you know, we're doing a review of the year show with our with our best films of the year to so try and take some positivity out of an otherwise very shitty year. I'd like to say we, we kind of we kind of want to bin off 2020, but I think it's been a strong year for films um, in many, many ways. Um, and I think there's been um, a good opportunity for a lot of more sort of less mainstream and more understated sort of dramas and and films to shine this year so I think that's a positive spin on it but yeah aside from that 2020 can do one <laughs> yeah I mean in time-honored fashion Paul I'll probably tie most of my reviews in the top 10 back to depression and loss because of course that is fundamental to almost all filmmaking so <laughs> this year it feels like that might be easier than ever perhaps but it's not going to be a big downer because like you say there's been loads of great stuff and loads of stuff that I think both of us have got pretty excited for in anticipation and a lot I would say a lot that's at least lived up to expectation, if not surpassed expectation when it comes to the work of, sort of key filmmakers this year and that sort of thing. Of course, we've had some difference in release scheduling. We've had delays. We've had platform switches. We've had a lot of content that's come out streaming into our homes, but not necessarily to the detriment of the actual films themselves so um we're looking forward to talking about all of those so what we will be doing today is we will have a countdown as we do every year from 10 to 1 of both of our lists of top 10 films of the year in addition we generally also make a little bit of time carve a little bit of time for the worst of the worst the absolute dregs of the year the bottom five or worst five films of the year so we'll do that before we get to the top 10 but before both of those countdowns, we did want to make a little time here just to talk about two major releases that have dropped in the last couple of weeks, I suppose, and those being Wonder Woman 1984 and, of course, Mank from David Fincher. And, um, Paul, should we dive straight into those or do we want to do some more small talk and catching up? It's totally up to you. Uh, let's, I think we should dive straight in. Uh, what, what do you want to start with, Pete? I, I Let's get all hot and heavy with Mank, I guess, um, because this was certainly one going into the year that may have been on our most anticipated lists, uh, certainly one that I think we talked a little bit about leading up to the rollout on Netflix, and um, a, a film that, for want of a, a less irritating description, is a sort of um, film fan's film in, in many ways, I think. And coming from a director who's very much a film fan's director in David Fincher too, from the script by his father, who I believe is called David Fincher Senior, am I correct? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> drop that on you. Uh, yeah, I think, Thanks, that, I think that is is the case. But um, I, I, I could have done more research, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, th so this one, Mank, of course, uh, telling the story of 
the lead up to and process of writing the script for the film Citizen Kane. Paul, coming into this, um, because we're, you know, we're not doing sort of a full blown major review here, but like coming into this, what were your expectations? Like how high were they? I think my expectations were high. I think I'm a big, I am a big fan of Fincher. I've kind of wobbled with some of his more recent films. I think he's he's a, he's a he's a very, very good filmmaker in terms of sort of honing his craft and, how he puts films together. So combining him with with Gary Oldman, who for me was in desperate need of a return to form after some of his more lackluster lackluster recent films, um, I thought it was it was kind of a, a match made in heaven. Really, the subject matter talking about the um, the the writer is it Herman? It's Herman Mankiewicz, isn't it? I think is the guy's name. Um, uh, talking about the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, kind of going into the process of making Citizen Kane, the fact it kind of was shot in the style those films were made. I was very excited going into this. I'll be honest. I was very much looking forward to it. Yeah, and and thanks for the pull up. Yeah, because Joe or Joseph Mankiewicz, of course, is his brother, also a famous director in his own right, and someone that I admire quite a lot. And actually, and I'll be honest here, um, I've been I've fallen off massively as a as a film fan this year. I think, but to the extent that when this film was greenlit and was in the works, I believed this to be originally a film about Joseph Mankiewicz rather than uh, Herman. But yeah, you're right to say that Oldman's character is. Herman Mankiewicz in um, I think like you I came in with pretty I, I guess pretty mixed expectations if I'm honest because on the one hand the subject matter and the sort of golden age of 1930s Hollywood is fascinating to me and films of that era and beyond are um, really um, I guess central to some of the love I have for film and filmmaking then David Fincher is a, a filmmaker that I admire, and I think for the most part I've enjoyed everything that he's done. Um, on the other hand, I think there is a, a something within me, and maybe this is my issue, where I get a sort of referential biopic incoming type uh, bell going off when a filmmaker of some repute is going to make a film about a filmmaker of repute or uh, a figure from history of some repute and they've attached Gary Oldman, your go-to sort of... um, method-like actor when it comes to portraying certain significant historical figures that made me think like this might be a little bit homeworky or a little bit dry or a little bit um yeah but perhaps lacking the the sort of um the sort of interest that I might be looking for in a David Fincher project I mean in the end Paul did this feel in any way homeworky for you did this feel like a slog or did this feel like a sort of um uh, uh, you know, unadulterated pleasure as a cinema fan. Um, I would go. Unfortunately, I would go with a little bit homeworky for my taste. Um, I think it's one of it's one of those films, and you've heard you've heard me said this a lot on this podcast. I really respect the, respected the craft of this film. I thought it was in, incredibly well made. I thought the performances were great, and I think the writing is, is very very good. And I think it's um, I think it you know you certainly it is interesting for film fans to watch. Anyone who's a fan of Citizen Kane will certainly take something out of this. Um, but I did find it a, a bit of a slog in places, and I was kind—I I don't know why—but I was kind of expecting maybe Fincher to go a bit off the wall with this and do something a bit different to a kind of historical figure biopic that we got. And I think as as a biopic, I think it's—I think it's a good one. I think it's—it's it's a well-made film. But I, I just was expecting him to go. I don't know a little bit, a little bit left field with it. Do something a bit different, mix it up a bit, and it's it's a tricky one because I respected it more than I enjoyed it. I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in the in the sort of um, admiration or respect column, certainly, 
It's astonishing what Fincher and his team have done here with the recreation of not only the visual style of the time, but also uh, just all these little touches, right, in terms of sound recording, in terms of like the whole thing has a sort of strange, slightly detached, uh, roomy sound to it from the dialogue to um, the sort of background sounds in the scenes themselves to using things like static backdrops as they would have done at the time uh, to the way that the film apparently shot in 8k has been sort of uh, de uh, compressed is probably the wrong word but sort of degraded in deliberate ways in order to bring about that greater sense of the era so all that stuff's to be massively respected and admired I think as as you said um or to borrow the word that you used. But I think like you, there was a, a part of me that that never felt as uh, a, a sort of overwhelming sense of enjoyment um, with with Mank. It, it kind of felt like something I, I ought to see through. It felt like something that is, is, you know, relatively nourishing from a sort of aesthetic point of view. But in terms of the actual script itself and in terms of light that it might shed, on a particular human being and set of circumstances, I found it a little bit, a um, little bit maybe bloodless or a little bit shallow is the wrong word, but lacking in in a depth of exploration that maybe I hoped for. Um, but that sounds like I'm being negative and I'm really not because it's a good film. Um, I will say this up front uh, and it's not to, to spoil any part of the show. It hasn't quite made it onto my top 10 of the year, which I find a little bit surprising considering expectations. Yeah, and, and I think I, I would, as you say, often I would I would co-sign a lot of what you just said, and I think there's there is a lot there is a lot to like here about it, absolutely, and the way it's structured in a similar way to the way that Citizen Kane was structured is very clever, um, and it is as I said, they, you know, it's clearly, I think it's clearly a labour of love for Fincher, but sometimes um, that doesn't necessarily always lead to the most entertaining of films. So yeah, it's narrowly missed. It's, it's certainly not appeared on my list. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't say I'm disappointed. I was just expecting something a little bit more different to, to what we got, I think, overall. Yeah, and and an easy kind of, um, I guess, sign-off on a thing like this is I do intend to watch the film again. And again, with full disclosure, I think it is important with, um, you know, sort of context when it comes to talking about films. And hopefully that's something that we do push a bit on the show and I mean here personal context more so than the filmmakers sort of context or frame at the time I've maybe made people aware on the show I've been moving house recently we've also all been in the grip of a global pandemic I've also been subject to the sort of um, undulating surface of the road that is my mood swings and sometimes you've said this before on the show Paul where like you encounter a film at a particular time, maybe even in a day or a week or a month, when you may be feeling a certain way or you may be uh, physically drained, for example. And I do think I came to Mank not at my peak. So I will give it another run. I will give it another go. But I felt a little bit middling overall on the film, even though aesthetically it's such a joy. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a film that needs to catch you in the right mood because it is very, very dense in parts. It's very, very dense. It demands attention and, and you know, it grabs your attention, don't get me wrong. And it's, yeah, it, it's a good film, but I was expecting, I don't know whether I was expecting different or expecting better. I can't quite make my mind up and maybe a second view. And as you say, we'll... Um, Will will improve or or certainly certainly sort of narrow my focus on it a little bit. So yeah, and without wanting to be too samey, we'll jump into another one, which <laughs> is uh, 
Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, of course, not Wonder Woman 2, which would have led to the abbreviation WW2 and would have been a little bit awkward. They've gone with Wonder Woman 1984, of course, set in 1984, and at a pretty pivotal time in the sense that that is the year that uh, Ronald Reagan became president of the United States. Uh, sort of free market capitalism and Reaganomics took over. And there's a sort of undertone. I mean, maybe it's <laughs> burdening Wonder Woman with too much uh, weight of expectation <laughs> to think that it's going to have some serious points to make about the way things are at the time. Although I would make the stretch that that is there in the screenplay if you want to go looking for it. This, of course, uh, Patty Jenkins' follow-up to the reboot of Wonder Woman from just a few years ago. What, 2017, 18, so, yeah. perhaps now? Yeah. Um, and this time, Patty Jenkins also has a writing credit on the project, which he didn't have with the first one. Gal Gadot returns as the eponymous Wonder Woman. Uh, Chris Pine is back, for better or worse. And Kristen Wiig now has a central role as this kind of bumbling um, polymath who doesn't quite know where she fits in the world, doesn't really know how to speak to people, doesn't really know where to find her confidence, I suppose. That's all going to change with the introduction of a giant MacGuffin, which is this rock that can grant wishes to the people who encounter it. Paul, I'll start where I did with Mank. Where were your expectations for this? Because as I recall, and, and I may be off the mark, you weren't the biggest fan of the first Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman. I'm not the biggest fan of the first, first Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman. I, as I said, I appreciate it. It's an important film. I like it. I, I don't dislike it overall, but I didn't go as mad for it as a lot of people went for it. I think it's generic in places. The finale definitely lets it down. And I thought it was not... Not fantastic. I didn't think it was a great example of its genre compared to other pieces. So my expectation of this was not massively high. I liked the idea. The trailer was great. And that remix of Blue Monday they put in the trailer got me psyched, I'll be honest. Um, so that was cool. I liked the idea of putting it in an 80s setting. Um, and to be honest, I, we were been kind of starved of blockbusters this year. So I was kind of looking forward to seeing something that was made on a huge budget. So I think as the year wore on, <laughs> my anticipation kind of increased. So... By the time we got to it, relatively excited, I would say. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I came in from a slightly, um, I mean, a higher point in the sense that I went pretty big on the, the first one of these Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman movies. And notwithstanding the fact that I thought it had a pretty overblown, I think we both said a pretty sort of overblown um, CGI heavy um, end sequence that that was a bit disappointing to me. There was so much in it to like, I think, and it was so well um, realised, I guess, as bringing Wonder Woman to the big screen felt to me like something that could be really disappointing, could be a much less than the sum of its possible parts. And I think Patty Jenkins really pulled it off with the first film. Going into this one then, I basically just hoped for more of the same and I hoped for it to be handled with the uh, sort of grace and power and sort of um, can-do attitude of the first film and the sort of empowering nature of that movie, I think. And... I guess um, with Wonder Woman 84, it's been a bit of a sort of, for me, slightly diminishing returns. Um, and I think why I feel that way is not so much because of anything to do with uh, Gal Gadot as the central character, although there are times where 
you do remember that Gal Gadot isn't a particularly established leading lady outside of Wonder Woman and the creaks in her performance sometimes uh, appear, I think, in, in dialogue particularly. Uh, then Chris Pine, um, it, it would be an easy shot to say that someone called Pine is a little bit wooden. I think he's a good actor. I, my problem is not with Chris Pine, the actor. My problem is with the complete lack of chemistry between the two leads. I, 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 it's baffling. I don't know. There's, there's, I'll keep that point for just in a moment. <laughs> but yeah, go, going in, Paul, like generally speaking, did it live up to your expectations? As Do you know what? Fairly it, middling it, it really did. I, I, uh, for me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my cards on the table here. I had had a few drinks when I watched it, so that might, that might color this review somewhat. Uh, but I, for me, it really, it almost had all of the original strengths and none of its weaknesses. I thought, I thought the tone was was pitch perfect. I thought the campy, silly, the silly nature of it, like a stone that grants wishes. And they, I just, I like the fact they didn't even feel the need to justify it. They didn't give the stone backstory. No one was taking themselves seriously. I thought Pedro Pascal was great from the, like it was for me consistently funny for for the whole way through. But I think that the one thing for me that I always that we talk about a lot on this show is these sort of big blockbuster films and superhero films having lengthy, and this runs like a full two and a half hours, having having lengthy running times and not justifying them. And I think. It's one of the few superhero films I've seen outside of some of the better Marvel efforts that I think the character work was strong enough here to almost justify the running time. And for me, this this felt like a, solidly a Patty Jenkins film more than it did. There, there seemed to be a le- less studio interference this time out. And I think the the other and I think it the strengths it were it played there was more focus on character work than there was on big action set pieces. There were some big action set pieces here. But for me, there was a refreshing lack of them compared to especially a lot of DC films. So for me, I think it for me, I, I stand by. I think it's better than the first one. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, though, you, what you say, you know, there was more of a focus on like uh, character work and development. But I, I guess it's not to undercut that point. But what I did find a bit disappointing is this like um, superhero movies, to my mind, are generally very, very burdened down with uh, callbacks to things that happened earlier in the running time, right? When an item appears, it's always going to be crucial later on in the plot. And in this case, we have this opening sequence beautifully filmed um, and scored uh, as well by uh, the clangy music fella. What's the the name of the person that I'm forgetting? No, not Trent He's not in it. No, Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, yeah. That's why I'm getting confused. (laughs) He did indeed, yeah. Um, And you've got this thing where Diana as a child is competing in a contest uh, on the island against the other um, Amazonian women. And uh, then at a certain point, she makes a decision to quote unquote cheat in the competition and is reprimanded by Robin Wright's character telling her you can never take the shortcut you shouldn't cheat you have to win fair and you're not ready to, ready to win or something like that to words to that effect and then you think well of course this is going to be the thing that's called back in a big way at the end of the film for something climactic I'm not going to say <laughs> what happens at the end of the film of course but it's pretty flimsy the way that they call back to what Diana did earlier and how she's learned from this in her adult life. And I mean, I can say that it in some way has a connection to, again, what I think is a a very big weak point of the movie and maybe both movies, the complete lack of chemistry with Chris Pine. And I was going to say the point that didn't make earlier on is that, you know, when Kristen Wiig's character is introduced at the beginning of the film, am I alone in feeling like there was more chemistry between Kristen Wiig and Gal Gadot than there was between Gal Gadot and Chris it's Pine. Not, it's not something I've really noticed, to be honest. I mean, I thought Chris Pine was, he's, he entertains me. I don't think, it's definitely not his strongest work, but 
I never really picked up on, never really picked up on, I guess, either on amazing chemistry or a lack of chemistry. So I'm kind of in between on that one. I, I got a kudos from my wife on saying something about the Hunger Games, which wasn't stupid, because obviously I'm very much not the authority on those films. <laughs> yeah. But my point was just that it felt like the Katniss Everdeen relationship with Peter in oh, the Hunger Games. In the, sen- <laughs> in the sense that you just don't feel like there's any sort of biological attraction between these two human beings and 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 yeah i felt that there kind of was and i with uh kristen wig and i kind of wanted that yeah. film i wanted that film where like this is what we're doing now i mean and it's not canon and it's not in the comic books and whatever i don't care but like i was more interested in that stuff so yeah i i enjoyed it man and like you said quite rightly it doesn't take itself seriously it's very like knockabout stuff i still don't think it needs to be two and a half hours long i think it could have shaved a bit off without really losing anything um i do think Pas- uh, pedro pascal was the best thing in the movie um prosthetics and whatever hell they did to his face yeah you know pr- probably uh the other end of the spectrum his kid son who is somehow has been the kid who was selected from all of the auditions <laughs> yeah. i guess um but yeah I, I mean i enjoyed this film it just didn't give me maybe the the sort of sense of exhilaration that I got when I saw the kind of uh, across no man's land sequence, for example, in the first movie, the first See, Wonder Woman movie. So Zimmer stole Zimmer stole point blank the um, sunshine music as well for when she took off into the air. So as soon as I hear the sunshine music, I was just like, yes, I'm into this now, despite the fact it's clearly ripped from sunshine. So Zimmer stopped ripping off his own themes and started ripping off other people's music. Now, sometimes Hans Zimmer, I feel is a little bit overrated and there was a lot of familiar stuff, I think, in this score um that he kind mm. of he, is is sunshine uh clint manson uh, no sunshine was john murphy i think originally um so oh, okay. yeah so there's no i it's just, don't get me wrong I, and i think yeah maybe i probably won't watch it again anytime soon because maybe my opinion will change but as a knockabout fun action romp i thought it was good and the other thing i think that i liked about it that i wanted to add as well it felt to me of all the dc films closest in tone to richard donner's superman so you had moments there were certainly moments where you saw wonder woman stop stop a fight to save people um, and that happened quite a lot where she prioritized, she prioritized saving people over chasing the villain. And that I felt that I thought really shone through. And I, I liked that. I liked that tone about it. Like it was a very, um, a very uncynical. She's a very uncynical superhero, which I, which I quite liked. So, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a really fun fun knock of an action film that um, gave me goosebumps in the right places. So no, I liked it. If we're talking about ripping things off though, didn't you think that, that what happens at the end, just biting on that film nerve that I always told you was good, even <laughs> though you didn't like it very much. Um, but yeah, I, I think there was a procession of things sort of in the last, in the final act where I thought, oh, that's from that film and that's from over there. And that feels a bit like this, but like you say, it's good fun. And particularly man, in a year like this, who would I be to sit here slagging something as sort of, um, you know, neon multicolored and, and sort of joyous in many ways as Wonder Woman 1984 when we've had so much doom and gloom and, you know, indoors life and that stuff. So, yeah, get on it. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, it is, uh, well, in cinemas now and available in streaming form also so um yeah check it out and we'll we may circle back to it next year and reassess once we've had a chance to rewatch this and and mank as well quite possibly but for now it's time to get right down into the bottom of the bin pool because uh we're gonna take a little break <laughs> and then we're gonna come back and we're going to uh, put on some sort of um elbow length gloves and just sort of go through the detritus of the year in the five worst films of 2020 right after this
so back we are with this is I always look forward to this because normally this is quite a good laugh doing this to be fair we'll try and we'll try and keep it we'll try and keep it positive as we talk about some of the year's worst films this list I'll be honest for me I've got a long list I think of 11 that nearly made the cut and I've narrowed had to narrow it down to five it was almost as hard um, as trying to narrow down the the best films of the year list but I have managed to narrow it down to five because I've seen some right old shit this year <laughs> Do you, want, do you want to go first? Uh, I'll go first. I'll, yeah, I'll dive in first with my number five uh, worst film of 2020. This is um, this is You Should Have Left. Um, this is the Bloomhouse effort with Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. Um, this was just, just farcically poor, I think, in places. The performances are limp. The story makes very little sense. It's, there's, it's not scary. It, it was just bottom barrel Bloomhouse, to be honest. Um, Fantasy Island may have made this list, but at least Fantasy Island was entertaining. Fantasy Island makes me laugh. I want, I really want to watch Fantasy Island again because it was so ridiculous that at least I, for, at least I laughed through the cinema. You should have left, just left me annoyed, and they should have left the set. <laughs> yeah, to get it in there. Yeah. Um, I, I won't spend too much time on number five for me. It is uh, Who Be Halloween. This film that like got this weird critical reception of people going like, "Oh, this is actually a slightly better Adam Sandler." But no, it isn't. It's just like you're like knocked out to make a buck at Halloween. Have you seen this yet? No, <laughs> no I haven't. <laughs> it, I mean, now I guess you can wait until next Halloween. It, there's just there's so little here. There's June Squibb uh, is decent. Julie Bowen I like looking at. Um, that's about it um yeah i don't know it's like some content it's hashtag content for hashtag <laughs> halloween um and adam sandler again playing someone who apparently is mentally disadvantaged even though adam sandler is just you know an massively powerful wealthy hollywood millionaire apparently he can just keep doing that and it just was it wasn't even disappointed uh, disappointing i should say it was just uh, so so poor and that fell right in step with my expectations. And I, I almost felt disappointed with myself. Like, why did I decide to do this to myself? Um, so that's Hubie Halloween, number five. What have you got for? Uh, number four for me is Rogue. Uh, this stars Megan Fox as the head of an elite mercenary unit who, on a rescue mission, get hunted by a really bad CG lion. Um, if that sounds bad, it is. Uh, it's po-faced. The special effects is the special effects is as bad as the lead as the actors' performances. I mean, it could have been so bad. It's funny, but it's just boring. Um, it's seriously save an hour and forty-five minutes for literally anything else other than Rogue. It's it, it just again, it could have been funny. It could have been light-hearted, but it takes itself seriously, and that's its biggest problem. Yeah, I started that movie and stopped that movie. <laughs> so, so that's probably a real commendation for this list, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, number four for me is one of those how did this get made uh, type things. It is uh, The Night Clerk, which went, I believe, straight to Netflix uh, end of February this year, at least uh, over here. I think maybe a little later here, actually. February is the US date. But this one is a vehicle uh, predominantly for Ty Sheridan as a night clerk in a hotel who um, is it's a bit like that Sharon Stone movie Sliver in the sense that she, um, excuse me, he is watching a bank of cameras in the rooms around the hotel that he has installed is incredibly creepy. And within that frame, he witnesses a crime and decides that he is going to try to intervene uh, with what has occurred. Uh, into this steps, uh, the character played by Anna de Armas, who should sack her agent because 
this is the worst thing I've seen her in, but she's done a couple of, you know, been involved in a couple of turkeys, I think, over the last couple of years, albeit within this meteoric rise that she's been on um, since, I guess, the Blade Runner movie. But uh, yeah, it's just odd. The Ty Sheridan performance is is sort of mannered and um, and sort of awkward in all the right ways to a certain degree, but then... The, the, trying to build off that this kind of will they won't they thing with him and Anna Diarmas is bizarre at best the the conceit of the film itself I don't think is handled very well it doesn't play out in anything like a satisfactory way it all feels a bit cheap it feels like one of those movies where the budget was cut like halfway through production um and what you get is is this um yeah the nightclub was not good I'm not mad at it I just it was a bit, a bit of a head scratcher, really, for me. So that's my number four. What's at three for you? Uh, this is this is where the list gets tight, to be honest. But I'm going to go with number three being The Fanatic, uh, which finally had a UK release straight to DVD shelves. I can't believe it uh, this year. Um, this is John Travolta plumbing new depths in this la- in just a laughably overacted thriller. Just to give you a, a, a premise of the setup, if you haven't seen this yet. A, it's directed by Fred Durst, so alarm bells should start ringing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> absolutely at one point in this film um, Limp, Limp Biscuit song is played in the car and the character responds to it going isn't this a rocking tune so you kind of know where we are with this John Travolta plays a character called Moose stalking a celebrity called Hunter a moose stalking a hunter it's that clever people it's that clever um, it is absolutely appalling um, I, there's sporadic use of voiceover that makes no sense there's some weird cutaways to hand-drawn animation you do get the impression that Fred Durst thinks he's making something very clever here Travolta is embarrassing I think the opening line of the film if I remember rightly is John Travolta walking in and saying can't talk need a poo um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen The Fanatic of all the films on this list I implore you to watch it because you will likely have a good time with it but not for the right reasons um and to quote again one of our listeners here, how Fred Durst kept the cameras rolling, rolling, rolling for this is beyond me. I may have used that joke before, actually, but I've done it again. <laughs> yeah, you've disappointed me. Um, the, the the guy does have a bit of a a bit of a, a scatological fixation as well, doesn't he? Because he had that record called Chocolate Starfish, if yeah. you remember back in the day. Uh, yeah, the, when you reminded me that this was indeed directed by Fred Durst, I thought. Oh, that's a film I'll never watch. So uh, again, probably a uh, commendation on a list like this one. Hey man, another one that no one should ever watch. Uh, Number three for me is, I want to set a bit of a scene here. I watched this film, I think it was the first film I watched, having been um, diagnosed with something hilarious called prostatitis. (laughs) Really a great time, guys, if you're at a loose end. Uh, Yes, during the first wave of the global pandemic. uh, So I had to go to a clinic while everybody was in like hazmat suits and whatnot. And then getting myself home, feeling absolutely terrible, weak, sort of sweating and uh, really in in a poor state. I thought, you know what, I'll go for something lighthearted. I'll go for the latest comedy thrown at me by Netflix. And it was something called The Wrong Missy, Paul. Um, you've seen this, haven't you? I have, yeah. It didn't quite make the, the shit list, but um, it's not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all that is good here is the performance of Lauren Lapkus, who is game. And fair enough. Uh, I think that I like her as a comedic actress, and I think she does some sporadically funny stuff in the movie. Uh, what is not funny about it is everything else. From David Spade, who is just, to me, 
perennially unappealing. Uh, I don't understand David Spade <laughs> as a thing. Uh, Nick Swardson, who is still doing Nick Swardson stuff, I guess, however old he is now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I was looking out for Bobby Lee because I knew he was in this. He gets about three seconds of screen time. It's just trash. And it's just like the kind of trash where people get like vomited on and stuff for, you know, jokes. Um, yeah, just really bad and really bad in a way that that makes you quite angry that people make a really good living off producing this kind of hashtag content, you know? Um, Netflix signed checks to people to to make the wrong Missy. Uh, it's, yeah, dog shit. Uh, what have you got at number two? This, um, the number two was was number one. It's been, it's been number one since July 21st uh, when I first watched it. And it's just been shunted off by uh, the film I'll talk about in a minute. But this is Inheritance. Uh, this stars Simon Pegg, Lily Collins, uh, and The Deep from um, The Boys, among other people. Um, it is one of the worst, one of the worst and most boring films I've seen in a long time. And the premise is is absolutely bonkers. So, so, so Lily Collins gets some inheritance, which is essentially, um, the, if I remember this rightly, I'm probably messing this up, but I don't really care, which is essentially Simon Pegg, wild man Simon Pegg with one of the cheapest wigs you've ever seen locked in a basement being creepy kind of promising or all this stuff Simon Pegg is not very good in this Lily Collins you're supposed to buy Lily Collins as a district attorney and you're supposed to buy the guy who plays the deep I've completely forgotten his name um as a senator so everyone's miscast the plot is so ridiculous it, it's unbelievable and worse than that the film is just dull and I think when I watched it with my wife she, she literally just got up and went to the shop didn't say a word uh, and just <laughs> so inheritance it's I think it's doing rounds on Netflix at the moment it seems to have picked up some positive reviews from some quarters ignore them steer well clear this is a bad film in almost every way and it the worst thing is it, it thinks it's good it takes itself seriously and it's just dull badly acted completely inconceivable and just a, a terrible terrible film uh, carrying on the theme as we do on a chart like this, a terrible, terrible film. I, I kind of thought about not putting this one on my list because I don't really want to give it any attention, um, but it's landed at number two on merit, I suppose. Uh, this is the Let's Say documentary by Let's Say director Al Bailey. Uh, it's <laughs> called uh, DTF, uh, an acronym that we'll all be aware of thanks the Jersey Shore, I suppose. Um, it is, well, it says here... A filmmaker follows his friend and widowed pilot across the world to find love on Tinder. The quest spins to an ex expose of depraved behavior. I don't even like the grammar of that sentence. But it's, yeah, the idea is that this guy, Al Bailey, just started following his friend because his friend's sort of interesting and wants to find love and he's this pilot and he's got money and he's successful. But then it turns out that when you combine sort of places like Vegas with drugs and alcohol and a sort of solipsistic egomaniac, then you get uh, bad behaviour. And the bad behaviour gets just like gross and depressing and weird and like why are you still making the film well it seems pretty apparent to your discerning viewer that the guy's making the film because he's just desperate to have something that he can pump out and lo and behold people can now pay actual money to a prime video to watch this thing um i didn't pay for this and make of that what you will but i would i'm glad that i didn't pay a penny for this thing because this stuff just shouldn't be su supported you know like 
we've had these conversations before about like should we be supporting all filmmakers or like does everybody have the right to have their films be seen and i've always had this pretty hard line of like you know some people just shouldn't make films some films don't need to be made whether documentary or fiction stuff there's just stuff that doesn't need to be made and people that don't need to be heard and and al bailey's one of them this subject matter and his absolute prick of a friend uh, you know is another one so um D yeah D D dtf down to fuck off i reckon with this uh <laughs> this thing and just miserable man like it's not what we need in a time like that and it doesn't have anything to say that's i guess what gets under my skin the most with certain films that try and you know uh pull back the uh, cover or expose the underbelly of the world and like see me behavior and stuff like that who gives a shit unless you've got something to say it's ju it's just like voyeurism and you're pretending that you're appalled and you're not yeah rubbish what have you got at number one well, I'm going to just come up with a list of people here uh, and then I'll talk about this film. So Craig Robinson, you should know better. Bradley Whitford, you should know better. Peter Stormare, you should know better. Alexander Daddario, you should know better. Paul Waterhauser, you should know better. Demi Moore, you should know better. You were all in Songbird, which if anyone has seen the controversy about this film, it's entirely justified, not necessarily just because is it too soon to make a limp kind of action thriller about a COVID pandemic? Yes, it probably is. Uh, but this is appalling on almost every level. And it's Michael Bay, I think, had his, has certainly had a hand in producing it, possibly coming up with a story. Uh, the director is not someone I've heard of and probably won't be seeking out their films again. This is Adam Mason. Um, it's it's just, it's, it's, it's boring in long parts. The performances are, are terrible. The film just has no idea what it wants to be. It, it's as if, Pete, that this was rushed through production to capitalise on an ongoing pandemic. Um, it's awful, absolutely awful, and I, I can't. As I said, for until I sort of watched this, Inheritance was Inheritance was holding out a strong pick for my least liked film of the year. But Songbird came in and battered it into a whole new, a whole new park. So um, yeah, hang your heads in shame. I know everyone needs a new patio, and I know people like money. But this, you should you should have read the script and steer well clear of this disaster. It is as bad as you've heard, if not worse. Songbird. <laughs> Is it just that you hate bird-related films? Because what was that one a couple of years ago? You remember? With the art gallery and the bomb and the painting. Oh, the goldfinch. The goldfinch, yeah. yeah. Are you just anti-bird-related uh, film titles and films? Maybe I am, yeah. Perhaps <laughs> I am. Uh, yeah, and and uh, Birds of Prey, you didn't like that. Well, I didn't, a pattern I didn't hate Birds of Prey, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Songbird, just fuck, steer well the fuck clear of this one. It's atrocious. Um, not even like it's not even so bad it's worth watching kind of to see like the fanatic kind of bad it's just bad and yeah they should uh, this is not not a good piece of filmmaking at all um number one for me paul is uh, a film that is so bold as to have the title force of nature uh this one imagine how you and i might think a global pandemic that we're going through now is a pretty serious thing but imagine instead a hurricane slash tropical storm that does absolutely no damage to any of the characters involved <laughs> in the film. Okay, so first of all, you're promising me from your box art and your poster a big storm that I'm I'm in for that. Set a film in a storm. I think it's probably something I'll like more than most people. <laughs> and so you, you think you know here you've got Emil, slightly controversial to say the least, Hirsch, but an actor who has been in decent things and done decent work if you separate him from maybe his 
personal ills. Uh, Mel Gibson, he's not problematic in any way. Uh, and they're both here being directed by a man called Michael Polish. Who is Michael Polish? Well, Michael Polish, it turns out, Paul, may or may not be uh, married to Kate Bosworth, who is the female lead in the film here. And I think that can be the only reason why she's attached herself to the project. Yeah, it's a film about a storm where the storm has no impact. It's also a film, you mentioned um, Rogue earlier on. It's a film that decides to use a, uh, a CGI wild animal trapped in a room as a sort of central device in the plotting of this thing that you know is going to be called back later on. Uh, no spoilers included. The whole fucking film is a spoiler, Matt. Like the whole, it's like laughably badly made. It's one of those where you think, again, if you haven't got the budget, just stop, like pare it down, do something smaller, do something in a in a confined space that doesn't pretend that it's something that isn't. This is like, you know, like the way that um, in the lead up to the release of No Man's Sky, uh, Sean Murray promised all the stuff <laughs> yeah. that you'd be able to, oh, you can have space battles and build bases and it'll be incredible. And here it's like, yeah, you're going to have a storm. Your main character's played by Mel Gibson. It's going to be huge. Mel Gibson is a very small part in the film. Uh, there is not really a storm that has any impact on the plot itself. And what you've got instead is this kind of ill-definable kind of drama set in some nondescript apartment building, which was the cheapest place for them to shoot, I guess. And then Kate Bosworth's cheekbones, sure. But it doesn't redeem the whole project. I mean, Metascore currently sitting at 29. I think that's a bit generous. This is almost one of those ones that you could, though, watch like having had a few beers just to take the piss out of it, I imagine. <laughs> so so maybe maybe for that reason it shouldn't be as high, but it's just absolute garbage and dishonest at the same time. So force of nature I have awarded my number one for this year. Well, that brings us out of the negativity. Um, I enjoyed the getting off that chest and I, I, loved, I enjoyed calling out particular actors there. That was that was quite good fun for me. So, um, But yes, let's move the, let's take the, the, the negativity and hate uh, out of the picture um, and we'll be back after this with um, honourable mentions of the year before we get to the top 10. So, Paul, to run off a few films, we wanted to do this time honourable mentions before the top 10 countdown so that we don't have that sort of anticlimactic thing at the end of the show where you just rush off a load of names in a list. So, Instead, let's rush off a load of names in a list before we do our top 10. Uh, I want to mention, first of all, something that I haven't included because I don't feel like it fits. And it's a bit weird for me to say that, having put like documentary miniseries on this list in the past and stuff. But the film uh, Lovers Rock, uh, the um, in the Small Axe series, right? This one was the sight and sound film of the year from Steve McQueen, of course, I should mention here, and is a sumptuous piece of work, but it runs an hour and 10 minutes. And there's something that feels a little uneasy about then putting that alongside what are more typically feature length features for the top 10. So for my part, I haven't included it. I don't really begrudge people who have, but I decided to keep it off. Is there anything for you that fell off the list for like a technicality or is it all yeah, just... Yeah, there is. And I watched it last night and it fucking blew my head off. I absolutely loved it. This is the Spike Lee directed David Byrne's American Utopia, um, which I kind of thought, should I put it on the list? Is it a film? Is it not a film? And ultimately it is directed by Spike Lee. There is cameras involved and it is shot. And that's, I think that made certain sounds list as well. But 
gig movie movie i don't know that's probably the only reason it hasn't made the top 10 because it is a fantastic piece of work um obviously if you're not a fan of david byrne you probably won't take much from it uh but in terms of the, the choreography how it's shot uh it's david byrne and i think 11 other musicians on stage with kind of no other equipment just their instruments and it's yeah really really well put together um and visually quite very exciting as well spike lee adds, adds something to it so yeah that's yeah that would be the first one that probably narrowly misses out on a place of this just on a technicality i would say i haven't seen the um the small act series yet and i'm quite looking forward to it so um need to watch um another one that maybe is a sort of technicality leave out although it didn't quite make my tent anyway on merit is a tv miniseries this one uh challenger the final flight which i would say people should seek out um it's on netflix it came out towards the end of last year at least in the uk uh if you have even a passing interest in in space flight and exploration then uh you'll be Oh, it'd be right up your street and that certainly was for me and I thought it was just really well put together but I didn't particularly want to put it on here because it is in four parts and um, it is a miniseries although if it had been even better I probably would have <laughs> thrown that rule in the bin and just stuck it on the list uh, just rounding off some others that I wanted to shout out I really like the movie Judy and Punch and I don't think it necessarily got the love that it could have got although now i'm looking at the uk date and i think it was the end of last year so let's call that a technicality as well uh, <laughs> but, it, but it didn't actually happen this year uh, another one which is certainly well worth the effort um, although a little bit hard to track down in the uk still is bad trip um bad trip of course the eric andre road movie comes slapsticky public prank thing i just like eric andre and i know that not everybody does but the the thing made me laugh out loud a number of times so um, i like that i'll also shout out another comedy which is the eurovision song contest movie which my wife and i still talk about now and sing songs from and have on various spotify playlists and stuff like that uh it, i liked it even though a lot of it is very very daft uh give me some of yours paul so that i can um you know stop talking uh so possessor um narrowly missed out on a place on the list of brandon cronenberg um sci-fi horror film that i think is certainly brandon cronenberg now feels like a he feels like he's um we talked about it more on the last episode but yeah it feels like he's come out of the shadow of his father and has made what feels like a brandon cronenberg film as opposed to a david cronenberg film some of the most haunting visuals of the year and andrew riceborough is superb in it so narrowly missed out again it's, it's always tricky putting these lists together but possessor is definitely up there for me this year uh bill and ted face the music i thought it might of top 10 it didn't quite um i love it it's very very silly it's a whole lot of fun it was exactly the film the kind of tone of film much like wonder woman 1984 that i think 2020 needed um and i had a great time with it and i will continue to re-watch it and love it um never rarely sometimes always is something i've caught up with very recently that is a superb uh, understated uh, drama about a 17 year old girl traveling across the country to get an abortion um, it's not an easy watch but it is brilliantly acted and brilliantly written so that's a really good piece of work but narrowly missed out narrowly missed out because there's another understated drama on the list but we'll get to that um, king of staten island still stays with me i know um i know pete you weren't such a big fan as me but there's something about pete davidson's character that really resonated with me i, I enjoyed that a lot um, just a few more happiest season uh, which we haven't talked about on the show we we're going to do on the Christmas special we didn't get to uh, really liked it it's, it's trips up on some kind of genre cliches at times but overall I had a great time with it uh, Swallow which I imagine we'll be talking about later so I won't mention much more about that 
1917, uh, technical masterpiece. Didn't quite get into the list because I still think it's a little bit lacking in character work. And just a couple more before I let you back in. Uh, Weathering with you, um, the animation from the director of Your Name was was a, a strong effort for me earlier in the year. Visually stunning, uh, had me in tears at the end. And then Clemency as well, which is another, I'd say, relatively understated um, sort of death row execution drama that was really, really strong. So all of those films are great um, in, in their own right and well worth checking out if you haven't already, but didn't quite make my top ten. I would add to the list, at least from my side, uh, Get Duped, which is on Prime Video now, the Scottish Highlands being hunted by the Duke of Edinburgh, played by Eddie Izzard. Uh, Good stuff, Um, funny stuff, I think, and and creative stuff. Uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7 didn't make it for me. Horse Girl, the indie on Netflix, I think is worth checking out. Uh, Emma, I liked quite a bit, didn't make the top 10, though. 1917, uh, along with you. Uh, 7500, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt sort of limited storytelling uh, cockpit invasion yeah, that was movie good, yeah. uh waves um the uh trey edward schultz movie um which i think is not without its merits i just i felt maybe i liked the soundtrack um and maybe the central performance more than i like the film as a whole uh what else guns akimbo with daniel radcliffe is good fun um birds of prey soul the recent um pixar film that i don't think we've talked about but that didn't quite make my list either so i think that sort of rounds out there might have been other honorable mentions from both sides i i guess but we need to get to the list itself so first of all we're going to do what we normally do break it up into two pieces the first one will be 10 through to six we'll take a little break we'll come back do five through to one paul are you in first or second this time uh who do we let's you can start pete Okay, I will go in with my number 10. And just to say up front, I believe almost everything that we'll pick will have been reviewed on a Strangers episode at some point. So by all means, if you want a more detailed set of insights, look up those episodes because here we're just going to keep it fairly brief. But number 10 for me is The Five Bloods from Spike Lee. Um, This one I think we both went for um, pretty decisively um, on its release it released back in June which seems like a hundred years ago and also about two weeks ago Uh, this one really is just a great bit of ensemble work it's emotionally moving and affecting at the right moments it's pretty shocking at moments and it'll make you jump at least one time in a very dramatic way for for me Uh, the soundtrack's wonderful the just realization of the project is to me, a sort of indication of how Spike Lee is is doing some of his best work currently between this and Black Klansman. And um, yeah, I just, I, I admire the film a great deal. And I think the central performances are to a man excellent. Um, to Five Bloods, again, something I'd like to go back to, but I still distinctly remember how much I enjoyed it at the time and how how carefully, cleverly and sort of artfully it's all woven together. It was a really satisfying project and um, an important project, I think, too. And that's why it's my number 10, Five Bloods from Spike Lee. What have you got at Temple? Uh, number 10 for me, I have Rocks, uh, which is a film directed by Sarah Gavron, written by Teresa Okoko. Um, and this really took me by surprise, actually. I didn't, I hadn't really heard much about it. I'd heard a bit of buzz on the festival circuit late last year, and then it kind of disappeared. And it is now on Netflix, so um, it's well worth checking out if you haven't got to it yet. Um, this is basically the story of a young teenage girl struggling to take care of herself and a younger brother after being abandoned by their single mother. Um, it's 
Um, what's great about this is just there's there's a real sense of despite the fact it's quite a harrowing subject matter and it's a powerful film in places it's the fact there's a mainly kind of non-professional cast here that they've that if you sort of see the making of the production team kind of went around schools in London um, to look for this cast member with with, un, with unprofessional with unprofessional actors and the young cast of um, schoolgirls here are absolutely brilliant the film is lit it's, it's bubbling with with so much energy like so much energy and it's just it's just an absolute joy to watch it's it drives its it drives its point home it hits home well but it does it with such a sort of deft light tone that i think a lot of people would look at this and go i don't want to watch something depressing about about a sort of harrowing subject matter but it's it's so much more than that and i think it's a really really heartfelt really really well performed um drama that absolutely everyone should watch it was great yeah myself included man because this is one of many in a sort of list of shame this year where between sort of yeah the the world at large being the way that it's been my mindset i guess for want of a better description and also life events getting in the way it's one of the ones i haven't caught up with so i need to get to it. it's netflix isn't it Rob? Uh, yes yeah yeah um number nine for me can tie into what i've just said i suppose so I remember this one really distinctly as a cinema experience because there have been so few for me this year. It's actually a little bit upsetting. Um, it is a film that I went to see when the local cinema reopened after the first wave of the pandemic. So this was the first time that we were allowed to go back to the cinema. Uh, and the film in question was, I think, a slightly early screening, maybe preview screening of Proxima from uh, Alice Winokur. And... To me, I suppose it's a little bit on reflection now that we're at the end of the year, but there is something that links a lot of the films in my list, and I think it is connected to what we've all been going through this year. And when you've got the central idea of Proxima being a woman played by Ava Green who is preparing to go off into space but can't have close contact with anyone including her nearest and dearest in the form of her daughter it's hard not to see that resonate with what a lot of people are going through at the moment not being able to hold the people that you love not being able to be close to them you know having to communicate through a piece of glass which literally happens in the film and now literally happens across the world and and it's all the more powerful for that. But even without that context, I just think this is a really well-made piece of understated drama. It doesn't need to do big theatrical space-based stuff to get across a real sense of gravity, for want of a better word. Um, but also it's just a heft. And the sequence that I know we had slightly differing opinions on in relation to the thing that the mother and daughter go to yeah. see against the rules, uh, let's say, um, to me just, just struck me as a, a pretty profound sequence in terms of this year's film, not just on the big screen because there's been so little of that for me, but but just across the board. So yeah, I, I like Alice Winokur's work quite a lot and I like this a lot. And I think Ava Green has matured into a really fine actress. So there's a lot to recommend it and that's why it's my number nine. Yeah, no, I'd really like to actually. It should come up in honourable mentions for me because I'd really enjoy it. So it's a good pick, I think. It's a good pick. Um, number nine for me is a film that is quite short in length. I think it's only about an hour and 15 minutes. This is uh, Yes, God, Yes, uh, directed by Karen Main, starring... 
Nat Natalia Dyer as uh, I would say a repressed Catholic schoolgirl away on um, kind of a religious a religious camp is the best way to describe it. Um, this for me is one of the funniest films I've seen all year, and I I, I absolutely love it. Um, it, it. It's not reviewed quite as glowingly as elsewhere as I've as I've taken to it, but I did really take to it. I saw having possibly haven't been to Catholic school. Um, I I could relate to quite a lot of what's happened here. I just thought Natalia Dyer was great. The film is bravely talks about female sexuality in a way that isn't that often that often discussed in cinema. Um, and more importantly, it was just very, very funny from start to finish. Um, and I, I had a great time with this and I'd, I'd happily sit through it again. And I just and I love also I love the fact it's an hour and 18 as well. It's just one of those comedy films that for me that just knows exactly what he wants to do. The gag rate is high. It's got a, it's got an important message in it as well. And that's the other thing. It's it's not afraid to it's not afraid to deliver its message, but it does it with very very effective comedy. And I thought Natalia Dyer, who I thought was okay in Stranger Things, but not the standout. I thought she she's it's a brilliant central performance. Um, and I think for me this will be probably one of the most underrated films of the year. I really really like it. Yeah, from one that you should have put on your honourable mentions to one that I should have, because I caught up with that one quite recently, and I agree with you, it's a really good piece of work. And it, if anything is a sort of rub on it for me, and it shouldn't, it's a bit unfair, but it sort of reminded me how good of a film The Miseducation of Cameron Post is, mm. because they deal with fairly similar territory, although the gag rate is certainly higher in Yes, God, Yes. Uh, the emotional impact is higher, certainly for me anyway, in uh, Cameron Post. And it, yeah, I mean, there's a sequence in Cameron Post where the guy reads bible scripture that just broke me to pieces yeah. because because not unlike yourself paul i mean there's background here i mean i grew up having to go to church for you know all of my life until i was well into my teenage years and there was all kinds of things that i could that i could uh talk to my therapist about in regards to that time so um yeah it really good film and a good pick i think now here's where i put one too low down on my list and you and the listeners at large think oh you don't know what you're talking about it should be higher <laughs> uh, this is my number eight which is the safety brothers movie uncut gems it came don't out panic, so Pete. long don't ago panic. <laughs> it, it came out so long ago uh, it was the 31st of january in the uk that it is a kind of a distant memory i suppose and i still remember the kind of sweaty palmed panic and sort of fast talking staccato nature of the whole thing i like the safty brothers movies i don't think i'm bowled over by their work in the same way that some people are i don't think i see them as sort of amongst my favorite filmmakers but I like this stuff and I like Adam Sandler doing something that's worthwhile and something that shows the range that he has and the range that he so often wastes in so much of his work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you know, take a little bit of anxiety medication and strap yourself in uh, because it's it's quite the ride. And, and I'd go back to it, man. And I put myself through that again because it's a really good piece of work. And so to get on the top 10 here, I think it has to be a really good piece of work. Although when we get to my next film, some may disagree. But... Uh, <laughs> It just didn't quite get higher for me. And I think that's maybe because I saw it as a sort of Safety Brothers exercise in panic rather than something that that resonated with me on sort of a deeper level than that. Um, Paul, what's number eight for you? And number eight for me is The Assistant. Um, and almost the reason Never Really sometimes always didn't get on the list because there was already an incredibly well-written, understated drama on the list. And that is Kitty Green's uh, written directed uh, the assistant featuring a brilliant performance from Julia Garner. Uh, this looks at a day in the life of an assistant to a powerful film executive um, and, you know, is not afraid to go 
go right in there on the issue of Me Too and the behaviour of a certain film executive. It might be loosely based on Harvey Weinstein. I, I don't know. Um, but the reason this works works so well for me is simply because it was so understated. You never the 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 kind of the film exec in question you never see on screen. And for me. That is the masterstroke of this film. Everything that has happened is alluded to. It happens in the background, and it's just. To, I don't know. I just think there's been it's been there's been a lot of understated films this year, and I'm a big fan of understated drama. Not everything needs to hit you over the head with its message, and the assistant certainly doesn't. And I think is all the more powerful for it. And Julia Garner is great here, um, and I think it's could be really essential viewing for anyone, uh, anyone that you know maybe is you know not necessarily defending Harvey Weinstein but not having an idea of, of, of exactly how these things play out and it's it's the little details in how he sets and how this this the shadow executive who you never see kind of sets up these meetings with actresses and it's just again it's it's a film that succeeds with what it doesn't show you more than what it does um and as a result it you know it was it was a shoe in for my top 10 as soon as I watched it to be fair mm, yeah watch that as a chaser to the Jeffrey Epstein documentary <laughs> I guess uh although in fairness I haven't caught up with that one either and I and I really intend to because I've heard good things from you and and others as well so yes another one uh, lots to get stuck into in January I think <laughs> uh now, again, this is the one where I very much divide the room. Uh, my number seven above the Safdie Brothers movie is my boy, Nicholas Pesci's version of The Grudge. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. I could see this coming it. a mile off. Grudge. Now, <laughs> it's one of those things that I, I really will defend it because I'll defend it from this position. For me, making a list like this has to be, for better or worse, the things that struck you hardest, the things that moved you the most, the things that made you feel a certain emotion or feeling. Maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, something that is, uh, as you were saying, sort of understated drama, something that connects with something from your past, something that that just riles you up in a certain way. And Grudge here did that for me. I mean, Yes, there are some fairly dodgy jump scares, I suppose. Yes, it may not have had, we may have had too much money for being a sort of low budget thing and not enough money for maybe being a more fully realised project. But I just think this filmmaker is so talented and I think what he did with Piercing was pretty astonishing and I don't think enough people have seen that film. And then there's a way in which this guy fucking understands the material. And if you have that, in your past, I suppose, my relationship with like J-horror and like kind of coming of age of a, as a film fan with like Japanese horror and Korean movies and stuff like that. It doesn't mean you have to like this film and like, Paul, I think you're on the other side of this particular fence, yeah. but uh, <laughs> I, I think that there are so many little touches and little references that are here that could be easily missed. I also think that he's very good at just creating awkwardness and atmosphere and unpleasantness and unease and all the things that you need for a film about a, a thing that's just going to haunt you and just won't let you go and a thing that's transmuted between people would you believe it in a year when a global pandemic has struck um yeah i i just thought it was really a fa it was one of those man where i came out of the cinema pretty shook and then took to the internet and everyone's like, oh, middling, not so good, four out of ten. Like, I just, I'm not on the same page as everyone with this one. And I'll take that, it's fine. Uh, it's my number seven and it is Grudge from Nick Pesci and I like it. Good, no, it's good. It's, it's, it's always good to be honest. That's the important thing with these lists. There's no point just going, I've put it on for the sake of it. So good for you, Pete. <laughs> That is such a patronising thing to say. I'm going to say good for you after every one that you choose now. Ouch. Deserved. Deserved. Um, right. 
Uh, yeah, talking about unsettling and disturbing um, uh, and horror, in fact, um, St Maud. Um, we're on number seven now, aren't we, if I remember rightly. St Maud comes in on my number seven. Um, this is undoubtedly a slow burn of a film, but the, it, almost on this list for the closing scenes alone, which is one of the most horrifying things and most effective things I've seen all year. Um, and, you know, a lot of horror, a lot of classic horror, you know, does come down to having incredibly disturbing scenes. Um, and St Maud has those uh, aplenty. Um, but it's not just that that works. It's not just the imagery that works. It's the performance from Morphe Clark is, is brilliant. Um, this follows a, an incredibly, a very religious, shall we say, nurse who becomes obsessed with saving the soul of her dying patients. Um, you'll want a bath after you watch this. I, I will warn you of this. It is absolutely bleak from start to finish, unapologetically dark, unapologetically grim, but all the more effective for it. Um, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a superb debut from um, Rose Glass. And I think this will be a director to, to certainly keep an eye on. But yeah, the, the, the closing scenes alone, I mean, it jumps into this list for me. It will stay with you for sure. Yeah, you had to bring it up, didn't you, Paul? You had to bring it up. The film <laughs> that I went to see on the very last day before the <laughs> cinema shut down again and the film broke, seemingly. Uh, I haven't seen it, and I still haven't seen it. I haven't caught up with it yet. I don't even know. I'm sure you can get it somewhere, um, probably on. Where is it? It's probably on. I don't on know. Air. I don't think it's gone. I don't think it's out of. I don't think it's on home release yet, because I know it was. Uh, right. Yeah, it was. I managed to get it in the cinema, but then. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Pete. I didn't mean to. I shouldn't. I should have left it yeah. off the list. It's caused hurt. No, it, <laughs> it it'll be it'll be worth the wait when I get round to it. But I'll never forget this movie for the time that I didn't <laughs> see it. Um, yeah, I tried my hardest. Uh, number six, I'm on to then for me. So this will be the last one before we take a quick break. Although one from Paul as well, of course. This one is phenomenal. This could have broken the top five easily. It is a documentary on Prime Video called Time. Uh, that people may have heard about. And I did do a little popcorn review, I think, on it on the show a few weeks back. Um, this one released in the middle of October of this year. And it tells the story of a woman who is trying to get through the time. The time that it is between her husband being incarcerated and what could be up to 60 years of a prison sentence. And it's a film not just about waiting but it's a film about family connection and the testing and straining of like bonds of love and family and the way that people's feelings towards each other can change but can also stay solidly the same and fixed and almost frozen in time and again and I hate to keep shoehorning it in but it doesn't take that much shoehorning in a year when people are separated over long distances sometimes for long periods of time, I promise you, you will need a box of tissues when you watch this. It's 100, uh, 121, it's an hour and 21 minutes in total. Um, so the time it takes to watch the film, obviously insignificant compared to the time it takes for the central uh, character, the central woman here to, to wait. But uh, just incredibly powerful work, incredibly well put together, um, they almost cut too much here, I think, as opposed, you know, most of the time we say, oh, this could have done with losing 20 minutes. I would have watched another hour of, of this this film. And I think it's excellent and I think people should seek it out. And it's easy to do that because it's on Prime Video. I will find it. I think it's made Sight and Sounds list this year as well, if I remember right when I was reading it the other day. So I need to uh, need to seek that one out. What have you got at six? Uh, at six, I have your favourite film of the year, uh, The Lighthouse. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about The Lighthouse on this show, I think, earlier in the year, so you can certainly go back and listen to those reviews, so I won't talk about it for, for much more. But it's a film 
that really, really stay with me. I think it's in, in Robert Eggers. I think is a superb director um, who is making films almost certainly an auteur. There's there's no there's no doubting that he's making very very distinctive films, um, and this certainly is no exception to that. I think the the visuals, the film looks absolutely fantastic from start to finish. It, it's incredibly atmospheric in terms of its sound design. The performances from Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are, are brilliant. It's blackly comic where it needs to be and disturbing where it needs to be um and i yeah i think it's a dead really really strong piece of work go back and i won't talk about it much more than that because you can go back and listen to the feature review and obviously a lot's been said about the lighthouse this year already uh but i think it's for me almost on a par with the witch um is in terms of um in terms of the caliber of his work and i think it's certainly one of the year's boldest and most distinctive films for sure and I mean, it's an easy one, Paul, but this could be called Lockdown the Movie. Surely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. the other thing as well. Yes, you talk about, as you've mentioned, in the year of a pandemic uh, and people being locked down, uh, Lighthouse is is the film about that, whether that was his yeah, intention it, or not. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. But it was it was pre that, though. Right? It was, this yes. is interesting to know. Yeah. Like 31st of January was our UK release date. And I'm pretty sure that I remember watching this movie before I think it came out, I think it came out in the US in September, if I remember rightly, of 2019. So, um, mm. yeah, it's just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. But yeah, absolutely locked down the movie, The Lighthouse. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, that is the 10 to 6 lockdown for our top 10 of 2020. So we'll take a little break and we'll be back with 5 to 1 right after this. So yeah, this is uh, five to one of our countdown of top 10 films of 2020. Uh, Pete, we'll go straight back over to you with your number five best film of the year. Now hear me out. This could have been higher again, but the films that are higher than this one, again, I'll go back to that thing that they just kind of resonate with me on a slightly more personal level, I suppose, as much as I have massive admiration for my number five pick. It is Parasite from Bong Joon-ho, released in February in the UK. So again, seems like a hundred years ago and only yesterday. Um, we talked about it at length on the show. There is tons to recommend Parasite. If it were switched around and put at number one on this list, I wouldn't argue with that, honestly speaking, because Bong Joon-ho is certainly amongst my favourite filmmakers, I would say, at least amongst my favourite Asian filmmakers and probably filmmakers in general, particularly contemporary uh, working directors these days. And I think the way in which he meticulously frames this critique of sort of an imbalanced society and social structures that lead all all of the shit and or water here to roll downhill on the most impoverished or most uh, struggling people within society is just immaculate. And I mean, it's like it's like a, a filmmaking masterclass in its own right. Um, if you're, you know, an aspiring filmmaker, you could deconstruct this thing for hours on end. You could base a film course on the movie. Uh, Parasite is fantastic. I could wax lyrical about it all day long. And I'm not going to do that thing of saying, oh, it didn't get higher on the list because insert small, minor, petty gripe, because I just don't think it's right here. I think all of these top five films are films that I absolutely adored from this year. And Parasite is no different. So that's my number five. Yeah, I think it's good. It's good that you say that. To be fair, because I'm kind of kind of in the same boat uh, with these. Although for me, there was kind of a not necessarily runaway number one, but I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah, the the order of these is always quite difficult, and depending on the mood it catches you on, it could it could swap and change. Uh, but for me, the number five is a film that we've already talked about uh, that you've already talked about on your list. This is *The Five Bloods* uh, from Spike Lee. Um, the performances here, I, I mean, you you did a pretty good job of summing it up. The performances here are magnificent. 
Um, I'd be intrigued to watch it again um, after the, obviously the terrible passing of Chadwick Boseman to see how much that resonates, um, if that adds anything to an already superb film. But the performances were fantastic. Narrative structure works remarkably well. The flashbacks are handled really, really well. Um, it's just a really, really powerful piece of work. As I said, it's not a subtle film, but Spike Lee's not a subtle filmmaker. And it really, I was expecting this to be all right. And then it really came in and blew me away. I kind of ended it going, wow, that was that was a ride. Um, it may well be it's may well be my favourite Spike Lee film, but I haven't rewatched enough recently to uh, to tell you to to say that with any certainty. But yeah, if you haven't found the Five Bloods yet, it's on Netflix. The presentation on Netflix is incredible. Um, and it's just a really really strong film that I had a great time with. Um, and yeah, I'd highly recommend the Five Bloods. It was great. Nice. Um, number four for me is. Uh, again, um, a, p- a personal anecdote. This is the film that I'll always remember being uh, the one that led me to use my uh, face mask as a tissue um, as it became increasingly saturated in in tears. Uh, this is Baby Teeth, uh, which I did see at the cinema amongst a, a smallish group of films I saw at the cinema this year. Uh, Baby Teeth is just this absolute coming out party for Eliza Scanlon as a, a major talent, I think. Um, but in addition to that, it's this film by director Sharon, uh, Shannon Murphy that deals with um, illness and uh, cancer is the, the central illness here within the, the character played by Eliza Scanlon. But the way in which people deal with uh, terrible terminal illness in very different ways, and there is not one way to make a film about terminal illness or serious illness. And I love it for that. I love the quirks of the film. I love the way in which the central character doesn't um, play a sort of a victim she doesn't play powerless she doesn't play drained of all her character she's not just bedridden the whole time um and some of the bits of dialogue towards the end of the film particularly and we talked about this i think in our original review on the show but particularly the exchange that she has with her dad played by ben mendelson every time i replay that in my head it just gives me like goosebumps in the way that you know, I talk about scenes from Manchester by the Sea or like whatever the latest film is that, that really got under my skin. So uh, I want to tell everybody that Baby Teeth is going to debut on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. I'm not sure which on Netflix. So if you haven't caught up with it yet, get on it because, um, yeah, real directorial talent, I think. Breakout for Shannon Murphy, but particularly Eliza Scanlon in the in the lead role here. Yeah, I, I would. it didn't make my list, but I would agree with that. It's a, it's a strong piece of work. And um, yeah, Netflix it's always great when stuff drops on netflix because most people will get a chance to see it so if you haven't definitely check it out it's a good pick it's a good pick um my number four is a portrait of a lady on fire uh which is is one of the one of the few films not one of the few films of the year one of the films of the year that certainly stuck with me since i first watched it uh it's a beautiful story um between a love story between two women um and just beautifully shot like there's some of some of the some of the year's finest scenes are certainly from portrait of a lady on fire it's one of the most one of the most sort of eye-catching and captivating films visually that i've seen for a while i think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of strong cinematography out there at the moment for sure there's a lot of good looking films so for me it takes a lot for one to for me to go wow that was an exceptionally well put together film but the performances are superb from naomi merlo and adele hanlon 
um, directed by Celine Sciamma, who I believe made, I can't remember, she's made some other films before, but um, <laughs> which I've completely forgotten about at this point. Possibly Girlhood, I think, which I've not caught up with yet. Uh, but yeah, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, just one of yeah one of the year's most most captivating films. It took took me a while to warm to it, I have to say. Uh, but when I did and I found myself drawn in, I, I absolutely loved it. And I thought it was a superb bit of work. So yeah, Portrait of a Lady on Fire at number four. Still haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> so yes, an, another one of those in that long list. Uh, at the end of each year, I usually make something that I call uh, the end of year hit list. And it's like all the films I need to see before the year expires. And then I can possibly include them on my top 10 if, you know, if they're befitting of that. And this year, that hit list has been largely ignored because I've been so caught up in this house move thing. So unfortunately, or fortunately, perhaps it's going to be a very good January, as I said. Yeah, I was going to say, you've got um, a lot of good stuff to look forward to. So. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Now that the boxes are unpacked. Songbird. Songbird should be high up that list. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that uh, What's the, the Fred Durst joint as well? Oh, um, uh, The Fanatic. That's the other one, yeah. Yeah, tickle, yeah, tickle yeah off. I'll get on those. <laughs> um, number three for me then is, oh my goodness, a film that I love very much and need to watch again soon. Kajillionaire. This one from Miranda July. Miranda July being someone that from you, me and everyone we know through the future was a filmmaker, a writer, an artist that I was interested in, and I don't even care if I get called a hipster for saying that. Uh, when Kajillionaire was was available, I jumped on it at the first opportunity, and oh, it's it's terrific. It's so weird, it's so offbeat, it's so off-kilter, and it's very much what Miranda July is all about. But at the same time, it's not just quirk, it's not just mumblecore, it's not just uh, like twee or um, mannered or all the things that might get thrown at a film like this. It's also got a huge beating heart. It's also got a sense of humour that made me laugh out loud a number of times. It's also got this terrific appearance from well not only Evan Rachel Wood of course in the the central role but uh the girl whose name I'm losing uh straight away who's the girl who comes in halfway through the movie Paul I completely forgot her name to be honest I haven't got it in front of me that because <laughs> it wasn't yeah Jane Jane the Virgin but whatever that actress is called keep going I'll find um, out. but yeah but yeah, she she is tremendous. The the chemistry between them is wonderful. The kind of opening up to the possibilities of the world is just something that like really appeals to me anyway. And films about people like figuring out how they might fit when otherwise they feel like they entirely don't. Um, I yeah, tons to love about Kajillionaire, and and for all its weirdness, I wouldn't want it to change a single thing. Um, the supporting performances are great. Uh, all of all of it is really good, I think, and um, I'll go back to it soon, I imagine. I can't find a name for some reason on IMDb. It's doing this um, first build only thing, so apologies. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, Gina Rodriguez. That's it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know why they've done it like that. It's weird. Uh, Richard Jenkins. I was going to say, and Deborah Winger, of course, That's is superb in it. Yeah. No, I uh, missed uh, out on my list, but I really liked it. I think uh, yes, yeah, one of the, again a distinctive style about it, and I think it was a very charming, charming and heartfelt film for sure. So it's a good pick. A good pick. Um, number three, that puts me on, Pete. Am I correct? Yeah. Number three for me is a film that you said had narrowly missed out on your list. This is Soul, uh, the latest from Disney Pixar, directed by Pete Doctor, who has made probably Pixar's best films um, and has continued this trend, in my opinion, uh, with, for me, a film that I didn't know it had me until I burst into tears at the end. 
And I, I mean, there were a lot of tears. On Christmas Day, there were a lot of tears, which, you know, is not always what you want on Christmas Day. But I just think, and talking again about understated films, I thought this could have been really, really on the nose. It could have been really, really heavy-handed. And it, and it really wasn't. And I think it's a, it's a good companion piece to, to Inside Out, I think. Um, in the way that it tells its story, I'd loved the I'd loved the the premise um, of where if kind of you have this like pre life where personalities are given um, and are kind of the the film I won't go into too much spoiler territory and plot here because probably a few people haven't seen this yet, um, but it's it's really not the it's not the film I expected. It doesn't go in the direction I expected it to, um, and I think I think it's all the better for it. And it did it just I said I didn't know it had me again until just floods of tears. And I kind of looked at my wife and she was crying and we were like, why are we watching this at Christmas? um but it's a really really powerful piece of work and i think one of i i just think one of one of pixar's strongest films and again it's it, what would be interesting is how well this goes over with kids because this did not feel in i know pixar don't don't only make films for children i'm not that naive to think that's the case but the, i'd be interesting to see what kids make of this because this didn't feel like this felt even more adult focused than, than some of pixar's other stuff i think in terms of the in terms of the nature of the, the, what it was trying to say um and the point it was making i thought the cgi was incredible the performances were fantastic and um yeah i can't wait to watch this again but i'll do it with a big box of tissues i think but i absolutely loved this uh, absolutely loved it you liked it that much i did sorry there's a joke in bad taste um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think your boy, uh, Mark Kermode, though, made a, a pretty salient point, which was that um, when people maybe question this being too complex or convoluted for kids to keep up with or, or con uh, comprehend, uh, think about something like Spirited Away and the response that that gets. Actually, from yeah, that's and, a really good point. Yeah. And if you try to explain what happens in that movie, I mean, it's a lot. Uh, so yeah, I, I like this a great deal. I think you said a companion piece with Inside Out and I would suggest also with Onward in the sense of dealing with sort of life and death yeah. and what's before and after and that kind of stuff. So yeah, like really good work. I think it didn't blow me away in the way that like certain, um, you know, classics have in the in the Pixar canon, I guess. But um, I liked it a lot and um, I was really happy that it was there and available, particularly sort of at this time of the year, despite the fact that it sounds like it broke you a little bit. It did, yeah. Yeah, but no, I absolutely loved it and I can't wait to watch it again. But but isn't this... I'm supposed to say, oh, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, that's what you should have said, yeah. yeah. Well done, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, here, uh, again, continuing my charge towards being just mutilated as a hipster, hipster twat on this show. Uh, number two for me, I'm thinking of ending things from Charlie Kaufman. This is so much better than a lot of people think it is, I reckon. Um, <laughs> than I think it is, that's what you're getting at. <laughs> well, no, not really. I just... Okay, it doesn't really matter to me what other people think about the movie and I think it's exactly the kind of movie like I feel like to be honest about most things but where it shouldn't really matter too much what other people think no, in the sense not. that like your your response to something like this is going to be very personal whether you go with it whether you look at films as a puzzle box that you need to solve which it seems like a lot of people did with this thing um whether you kind of let it wash over you whether you find it irritating whether you find it difficult to pin down or, or you know up its own ass or whatever these are going to be very personal responses and my response to this is just that i i love i love spending time in the kind of mind of charlie kaufman and, and what it is that he's done next and how he's struggling with um the the things of the world and um of course this is an adapted screenplay or a screenplay that has been written from a source book so it's not as if every idea here springs from the genius mind of, of mr kaufman but um 
the Jesse Plemons performance is brilliant. The Jesse Buckley performance is brilliant. The two of them together uh, just like fire off each other in a way that I found incredibly satisfying, albeit when Plemons looks like he wants to kill himself, Buckley looks like she wants to be anywhere but around this particular person. And then you bring in, you know, to Tony Collette and the supporting performances in general, really strong, but it's more so just the way in which it's so... So, like films can be criticized for being too smart but i think sometimes there are filmmakers who just are really smart and you have to kind of take your hat <laughs> off and say like good point. you you've done something there that very few people would be capable of in terms of the ambition of the project for the same reason i loved uh, for example synecdoche new york where a lot of people will say like oh, i just falls in on itself and it's wanky and so yeah of course that's it's supposed to be that way but i could go on and on um yeah i i think this is brilliant i think this is absolutely brilliant and i'm i feel quite blessed again in a year when it was so difficult to get out to the cinema um for many people myself included that this thing just sort of appeared on netflix and you know i was able to digest it that way albeit i would have loved the experience of seeing it in the cinema i didn't have that and the next best thing was getting it as soon as possible so um yes number two for me i'm thinking of ending things it's still on netflix check it out form your own opinion and then write in and tell me why it's a load of old wank and you hated it um <laughs> Paul, what is number two for you? Uh, number two for me is a film that you, was your number five that has come up before and will come up again and is in, in the top of number of films of the year list and deservedly so. This is Parasite from Bong Joon-ho. Um, again, I won't talk too much about it. We've done a show on it. Pete's talked about it. But uh, for me, it's just another example of Bong Joon-ho's versatility as a, vers versatility as a filmmaker. Um, it completely confounds expectations. Um, and it, it, we talked that, like... There's something Bong Joon Ho can bring just this level of intelligence to very sort of commercial sensibility films, um, and this the fact that this has done so well at domestic box office was great. I remember my wife saying, "I heard people talk about Parasite on the bus. That's what like the best picture win did for it." And when it won best picture, I gave a cheer. Um, absolutely, sat up watching the Oscars. I was half asleep at four in the morning. And I gave a big cheer when it won, and I think it deserved to win. I think it's um, it's it's just a superb film. The the as you've mentioned, Pete. The, the attention to detail in this film is second to none. The way they built the house to shoot the film in, nothing, nothing is accidental here. Everything is intentional. And it's it, it really is a film that rewards rewatches. And it is, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Arguably, yeah, arguably could have been number one on my list. Um, but another another film has pipped it, but that doesn't mean this is necessarily a weaker film by any stretch because it is a fantastic piece of filmmaking and deserves all the plaudits that have been thrown at it over the course of the year. So yeah, Parasite is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, like I said at the time, if I'd swapped number five with number one or two or whatever, I would have been happy with that too. So yeah, it's it's such a good movie and, and maybe it sort of su slightly suffered in my, in my um, estimation because it was released so long ago relative to some of the other movies. So there's like a certain amount of recency bias, but it really, really great. Uh, this brings us then, does it not, Paul, to our drum roll, please, number one films of the year, which I am absolutely positive will not be the same. Um, judging by, you know, how we've talked about movies over the course of the year, I guess. But uh, number one for me is A Scant Hour and 34 Minutes. It's from the director Carlo Mirabella Davis. And this one is Swallow that I think was an honourable mention for you. Yeah, Matt. really, really strong film, but go for it. So I, again, I personally responded to this, I guess, very, very strongly. And I don't feel the need to sort of justify that, although I guess that's what I'm going to do. Um, I think that a film 
like this. There was one critic, and I'll, I'll search out the name of this critic. The critic from The Hollywood Reporter, Karen James, uh, calls the idea at the centre of this film cartoonish. Uh, the essence of the film is cartoonish and it's shot in such a way and played so straight faced that Swallow becomes utterly ridiculous. I would I would um, I would suggest that whoever Karen James is maybe doesn't have the first idea about things like, um, you know, self-loathing and isolation and self-harm, because. As somebody who's pretty familiar with those things, this was both uncomfortable and, for me, very precisely observed. The idea that people would say a central character consuming... That's what this is about, by the way. If people don't know the movie, Swallow is about the condition called pica or pica, depending who you listen to, which is the condition by which uh, subjects, patients, people... eat, swallow, consume things that are not human food. So it could be anything from soil through to uh, thumbtacks, through to marbles and all of those things included on the menu here for our central character, played by Hayley Bennett absolutely brilliantly in the film. But if you think that that being something that someone might do to themselves is cartoonish or ridiculous, then maybe your frame of reference is just not as great as you think that it is. And maybe it would be the time to sit the fuck down and not talk about stuff that you don't understand. But, you know, this is one critic and many other opinions are available. It just annoyed me quite a lot. I can tell. Um, yeah, I... I For all of that thematic stuff, for the fact that it opens with this scene of lambs who are being selected for slaughter, which is entirely relevant to the rest of the movie, um, to all of the machinations of the thing in terms of this like hermetically sealed world where a, a young woman is essentially dying and suffering on the inside when all the surfaces are perfect. We have also the surfaces. The thing is immaculately shot. The use of glass and reflection and mirrors and the way in which the camera is positioned in certain sequences is just so effective. Such an effective uh, demonstration of what you can do on what is a relatively, I would imagine, limited budget here. Uh, Yeah, it's just one of those films that I almost, I guess I, um, there's like a sense of, um wanting to push you know like the the little the little train that could or whatever i would rather push something like swallow up my list than focus on something that's already garnering a load of praise from everybody else and that's not to just be contrarian it's because i think it's important to shine a light on things that maybe people would gloss over or not bother checking out i think this is an, a really a really remarkable piece of work and and one that i think if it resonates with you then you're not going to forget it in well, the course of a year, evidently, but more so, I would say, a, a number of years after to seeing the thing. So, yeah, it worked for me. It's um, really, really good. It's really uncomfortable. It won't be for everyone, but I thought it was excellent. And it is the film that stood out to me most in the year 2020. Paul, what is number one for you? Uh, Uncut Gems. I'm going to go straight in there. My number one film of the year is Uncut Gems. This is a film that, you know, it came out at the beginning of the year, as we were talking about earlier. And it's one that just I haven't forgotten. I've watched it twice now. And it was almost as intense for me second time round. Like this, for me, I, I I love the Safdie brothers. I have to say, I love what they're doing. This is one of this is one of the most exciting thrillers I've seen for years. 
It picks you up from the very first moment and it does not put you down until the film ends. It is uh, it's almost heart attack inducing. I think I think my mate messaged me when he watched it. He was like, I'm going to have a heart attack. Like, what the fuck have you just recommended to me? Um, it is an intense film. The sound design is fantastic. There's a constant grating. There's constant background noise. There's constant jangling going on. Like, it's little things like that you probably notice more on second viewing. But it's just constantly atmospheric. It's, it's just got you on edge the entire time. And you just... You don't really know where you are. You're kind of in it with uh, this this ride with Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler's brilliant here, absolutely brilliant. Like his character is a tosser, but you really are rooting for that. You're rooting for the guy from start to finish. You really want him to get away with it, even though he's he's essentially a greedy piece of shit that you know really should come undone. But you're rooting for the guy all the way through. Um, support is brilliant. Lakeith Stanfield is always gives brilliant performance. I thought Julia Fox was great, and just the, it's just the direction and the intensity of the film, like. For a film to excite me this much when I watched it at home on Netflix and not on a cinema screen is is a pretty high achievement. And this is yeah absolutely one of the most gripping films I've seen for quite some time. And I think when I think when we talked about it at the time, even when we reviewed it way back in January, I was just like, it's going to take a lot to knock that off number one. It might have been June, but that's not out till next year, so we shall see. Uh, but no, head and shoulders for me. The film that stuck with me the most, the film that's impressed me the most this year is is the Safdie Brothers Uncut Gems. I think it's an exceptional piece of filmmaking, and I love it. Nice. Um, have you got the 10 in front of you that you've just uh, gone through? Uh, I can have. Okay, so I was just going to run back through from 10 through 1 like we tend to do, I guess. Uh, so for me, I've got number 10, to Five Bloods, number 9, Proxima, 8, Uncut Gems, Seven, Grudge, uh, six, Time, five, Parasite, four, Baby Teeth, three, Cajillionaire, two, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and one, Swallow. Okay, and for me at number 10, I've got Rocks. At number nine, there was Yes, God, Yes. At number eight was The Assistant. At number seven was St. Maud. At number six, The Lighthouse. At number five, To Five Bloods. At number four, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The number three, Soul, number two, Parasite, and number one, Uncut Gems. Nice. And you're right, what you said at the beginning of the show, that for all the difficulties of the year, I mean, judging by those two lists, it seems to me like it has been a pretty good year in film. I think, Would absolutely, yeah, no, absolutely yeah. agree. And, you know, trying to whittle it down to 10 is always tricky. Um, and, yeah, there's been some really, really good stuff, really, really good films this year, I think. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to what lies ahead in 2020 as well. 2021 yeah. even. Uh, Don't want to talk about 2020 again after this. <laughs> let's, let's have the year no. again. <laughs> no, let's draw a line under 2020, both in terms of film reviewing, but certainly in terms of almost all other events. Uh, we will be back then in the brave new year of our Lord 2021 to keep you up to date on the latest and greatest film reviews and news and also maybe one or two previews. Uh, before then, if you want to get in touch, all the social media channels are open. The best one probably at Stranger Cinema on Twitter but Paul any last words for this year uh, and happy this new year out? let's get 2020 out of the way <laughs> absolutely till next time bye bye right. shut up and sit down